0: Hi, this is Deborah Trinelli. You may remember me as Bobby Ewing's Secretary Phyllis Wapner on Dallas. You are listening to Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham.
1: Enjoy this show. Send host Stephen Brittingham your comments and questions to Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. That is Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com.
0: Stephen looks forward to hearing from you soon. Previously
1: on Dallas. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast, friends and listeners. This is your host, Stephen Brittany. You are just moments away from my conversation with special guest, Patrick Duffy, who shares his memories of portraying Bobby Ewing on Dallas in a deeply sentimental and enjoyable conversation. To Hollywood and Beyond podcast, friends and listeners, this is host Stephen Brittingham. Thank you for listening. During the Dallas 40th anniversary celebration here on Hollywood and Beyond, several cast members visited me here on the show, leaving me both grateful and, to be honest, amazed. The 40th anniversary celebration may have concluded But the celebration of this iconic primetime television blockbuster continues onward, as it does with millions and millions of viewers throughout the world. My extra special guest today is Patrick Duffy. As Bobby James Ewing, he captivated viewers with his sensitive yet strong portrayal of the half-cowboy, half-Oil Baron character. His quest for honesty was backed up with loyalty, but those who underestimated him soon discovered he could play his own version of hardball. Viewers were swept up with Bobby's on-screen romance with Pamela Barnes, portrayed by Victoria Principal, and when it came to his on-screen brother, the powerful J.R. Ewing, portrayed of course by Larry Hagman, all resulting in and one of the most memorable brotherly relationships in television history. Even after all of these years, one thing remains the same. Bobby Ewing still lives on in the hearts of Dallas viewers everywhere. And that most definitely includes myself. Patrick Duffy, welcome to Hollywood and Beyond, sir.
0: Well, I have nothing left to say after that introduction. (laughs) I think we should just stop the interview now and... I'll go admire myself in the mirror. My God, you wax poetic.
1: (laughs) I think that covered everything, didn't it? (laughs) I think that pretty much covered it. Yeah, I got nothing left.
0: (laughs) That was wonderful. Thank you so much.
1: Well, fortunately, I left a few uh, tidbits for you to go over today.
0: But you know what you did, quite interestingly, is not many people know that the character's full name was Bobby James Ewing. And actually, Robert James Ewing, which makes his initials R J.
1: Isn't that something else, R J.
0: So it's R J. versus J (laughs) R. All those
1: years, Bobby could have had his own uh, his own uh, version, his own nickname. Yeah,
0: but I mean, but it was interesting because not many people, uh, literally. uh, That's the first time I've heard somebody introduce that character with his real name, which is Robert James Ewing uh so very good for you you get another gold star right there
1: thank you so much patrick i'm so glad i <laughs> i did mention that i appreciate it <laughs> and, and such a huge honor to to have you on the show so thank you so much
0: oh well, my pleasure
1: and i thought patrick we would start from the okay. beginning i would enjoy learning where you are from
0: oh the very beginning okay well i was uh, i was born and raised in montana a very small town in Montana of about 600 people. Um, uh, There until about my 12th year when my family moved to Seattle, which is culture shock to say the least. Um, Did all my schooling uh, outside of my grade school in Seattle, junior high, high school, University of Washington. Um, Year after graduation, I met the woman who became my wife uh, who was a ballerina. She uh, lived in New York, obviously, where the center of that craft was. So I followed her to New York. Uh, then we went from there to Los Angeles where uh, because I had an agent finally who said you should come and try and go to work in LA. So she followed uh, me on that quest. And that's where we lived for almost 30 years uh, before retiring up here. I in right now at our... The only home I have now, which is in Oregon, and um, that's where we we lived together until she passed uh, three and a half years ago. And um, this is where I am right now, I'm talking to you, looking out at wild turkeys walking around my yard right now.
1: Well, that sounds like a beautiful image right there.
0: Well, it's a, I must you know admit as I do every single day how fortunate I am to have, you know have the. Just the luckiest career in the world, Um, and to be able to wait out this, you know, horrible pandemic, um, quite, you know, isolated voluntarily uh, on this little mini ranch that we've had for 30 years, Um, and it 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 has allowed me to survive this uh, COVID uh, quarantine. Um, very comfortably and I'm I'm grateful on a daily basis uh, that I was allowed to do this. So it is beautiful here and it's, it's lovely.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that, Patrick. And I'm so glad Mm -hmm. to hear that as well. I was very curious, Patrick, what did you like to do for fun while you were growing up?
0: Well, Boy, it was a different world then. You know, I'm 72 now. So, when you know, back in the early 50s, and especially in Montana and in such a rural place that we lived, um, fun was self invented on a daily basis. We had no television. Obviously, TV was invented, but my parents didn't have one until much later. Um, so, literally, you, you know, any young person in that town could wake up in the morning without supervision get dressed, grab whatever, you know, in the kitchen you wanted to eat and leave the house for the entire day, the entire day. And with parents not wondering where you were, you didn't need to report back in. At times we'd get on our bikes and just ride down through the country roads or we'd take our fishing poles and we'd go uh, trout fishing for a little brook trout in the many streams around town. Um, I had friends who had ranches. Uh, I would sometimes spend a week at some of these ranches that my friends had and we would do nothing but ride horses and walk in the mountains and during hang season even at the age of about nine or ten i was driving a rio truck while the big guys were bucking bales up on the back of it so it was a norman rockwell childhood um and then uh, you know I'm, the move to seattle was completely different of course we were in the midst of the city uh, and everything was different but i think my Identity, my self-identity, the person who I feel that I really am, was established in my Montana upbringing. That's what my heart and my sort of instincts always revert back to. And um, I'm I'm now with a a most wonderful woman that I love named Linda Pearl, and um, she mentions just that you know that she seems to think not having been in my hometown, but that that was what she sees as the qualifying factor of who I am. So Montana was you know, significant, not just in memory, but really in the structure of the person that I am, I think.
1: That all sounds so appealing and, and just yeah. so nice.
0: Well, and it's something that, that doesn't exist now in, in quite that same form. Even in rural areas, there's you know, modern times have caught up and development has caught up. So I'm sure in some pockets somewhere it exists, but um, it, it, it was a fortunate part of my being at that age at that time in our history to, to be able to, you know, have that uh, educational background. Um, so I'm, I'm very fortunate, as I said.
1: And I'm wondering how your interest in acting, though, first began for you.
0: Well, that was interesting. You know, first of all, I didn't know that what I watched, we had one little movie theater in Boulder, Montana, the Rialto. And I, thinking back and I was just having this discussion as Linda and I were watching a, a movie last night, I was thinking, when I went to the movies at eight, nine, and 10 in Montana, I didn't realize fully that those were actors up there, that there was a camera recording what I was seeing. I, and to this day, I'm completely captivated when I watch a film. I I don't watch a film with any technical eye whatsoever the first time. I'm totally enraptured just by the, the mystical side of that vision that you see. But when I grew up, I didn't know those were actors until I went to Seattle, where they actually had a drama class in my junior high school. And because I was buddies with this guy, uh, and he was going in to be in this – really, you know, childlike play that they would do in junior high school. Um, he said, come along. So I went along and read for the part and, and got a part in it. And that was the first introduction to the fun, literally the fun, of pretending you're someone according to what you're reading as opposed to just going out the back door and playing Cowboys and Indians. So I did a play in junior high school. I got the bug. In high school, I did plays literally, you know, all three years—sophomore, junior, and senior year—in high school. And I was going to be an architect. Um, my father, uh, you know, besides owning a bar and running that, was a really good carpenter, and I became a, a pretty good carpenter under his tutelage. Um, but I would—I just thought, well, I'll take it to the next level. I'll, I'll be an architect So I really loved my drawing class and mechanical drawing classes in junior high and high school. And I was going to enter the School of Architecture at the University of Washington. And my drama teacher in high school, literally in my senior year before I graduated, decided and think, you know, there are people who make a living doing what you're having fun doing at the school. And if you'd like to try, I will write a letter of recommendation for a special program at the University of Washington. Maybe you can get in. I thought, OK. I went home, literally my dad was reading the paper. I walked in, I said, Dad, I'm not gonna be an architect. I decided to be an actor. And he looked up and went, Oh, all right. That's all he said. Oh, all right. And went back to reading his paper. So, you know, that was as good as a, a, you know, a bona fide um, you know, at a boy. And I I got in the program that my drama teacher recommended and that began my entire career.
1: It sounds like Patrick, your father did not discourage you. From pursuing the life of an
0: oh, not actor, not at all. Not at all. It was an interesting thing. Both my mother and my father, and my sister, experienced the same thing. Um, they were—they didn't discourage and they didn't encourage. Is all that is all sounds so uh, diminutive, but I think the beauty of what they did was whatever we decided to do, they treated as normal. They treated, uh, you know, even a big swing from architecture to acting. And my sister was going to be a marine biologist and ended up being a cop. Uh, You know, and it all just went, oh, all right. And there was no uh, qualifying feeling behind what they were saying. And it made it all our own decision. We weren't doing it to please them. We weren't doing it in defiance of, you know, you better not do that. Um, We just felt completely compelled to follow our instincts and that uh, my parents were really integral in establishing that I don't know whether they did it on purpose or whether they just didn't care but either way the result was uh, that both my sister and I flourished doing exactly what our hearts told us to do
1: well if I may say so Patrick a special thank you goes out to your drama teacher I'm sure you would have done just fine with that other career path, but thank goodness.
0: Yeah. And I do thank her. And and to this day, her name was Maxine Dysart and Maxine Dysart is the pivotal point in my life uh, that led to us talking right now. Uh, You and I having this conversation as a result of Maxine Dysart.
1: Isn't that something else? Well, special thank you goes out to that uh, individual, most definitely. Yep. I'm wondering, Patrick, when you arrived to Los Angeles, your carpentry skills, was that something you relied on to, uh, before your days on Dallas began?
0: Absolutely. Um, uh, I did two things in, 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 to keep bread on the table, and also my wife, because she was a ballerina and was no longer employed. She was getting unemployment for a while. So that saved us. But I worked for $4 an hour as a carpenter. And, you know, I was a private carpenter. I didn't go into some big office or, or construction project. I was freelancing myself. Um, and I drove a truck, a delivery truck for a florist. Those are my two jobs that alternated back and forth all the time. And I was remodeling uh, a boat in Long Beach, California, Uh, When I got the man from Atlantis. Because I was doing auditions. Uh, The funny thing is, when I was driving the delivery truck, they all knew at the florist that I was an aspiring or perspiring actor. (laughs) And they would route the deliveries based on, they'd say, Do you have a a reading or an audition today? I'd say, Yeah, at 11 o'clock, I really would like to be at Warner Brothers. So they would look at the routing of the deliveries I'd make and they'd make sure I was in Burbank close to Warner Brothers for delivery. And because it was a delivery truck, I would park in, in commercial parking places, jump in the back, put on my best pants and then go and do my audition, come back up, jump in the back, put on my work pants and make the next delivery. And they allowed me to do that and, for two years. Uh, I was able to do those auditions, and then, when I was my own boss as a carpenter, I would just go in after an audition as opposed to trying to work around it so um, but yeah, uh, I relied on four hours an hour, both my wife and myself to literally you know buy enough uh, we, we pretty much much on potatoes, uh, mung beans, and lentils which were the cheapest things we could buy that had the highest protein and filled us up. And, you know, we survived until, you know, acting money started coming in and, and the thrill was buying bacon, you know, or two rolls of paper towels at one time. We thought we had died and gone to heaven.
1: That was a big treat for you then.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, literally, and my life, you know, with 25 years as a ballerina. They didn't make any kind of money. Dancers, you know, subsistence living as an art form. So we were used to and, and made an adventure out of survival cooking and survival. You know, we didn't have any discretionary income in whatsoever. We didn't go to movies. We didn't go out to a restaurant ever because we couldn't afford to. Um, so our lifestyle was that, but we didn't care we were missing anything. You know, two young kids in love. And then we had a baby, and that was cool. And you know, and then I got to you know, Atlantis. And everything
1: changed. And I'm just curious, Patrick. At that time in the industry, was a lot of aspiring actors waiters? You know, obviously that is a common profession to do on the side. But at that mm-hmm. time, do you recall encountering, you know, folks who were aspiring actors who would tell you, oh, I'm a waiter at this restaurant?
0: Uh, well, in New York, I was a waiter. Gotcha. I was a carpenter and a waiter. Uh, I, I, I waited tables in a restaurant called the Pelican Restaurant, no longer exists. In um, uh, it was 70th, 69th or 70th and in, in Broadway. And uh, I would go in there and half of the waiters in there were, you know, they were aspiring Broadway actors, you know, dancers or, you know, just making enough extra money to survive and going on auditions. And in fact, the wife of the uh, the couple that owned it, the wife was a former, she was never a star on Broadway, but she was a working actress on Broadway for years. And then they bought this restaurant and she retired. And so it was all um, inspirational towards the arts. And in LA i found, you know, in retrospect, because I was a carpenter, not in that, uh, group of people that were actors. I was out there in Long Beach with, you know, a bunch of other just craftsmen as we built this boat, rebuilt this boat. Um, But later in life, I found out how many of, you know, fellow actors, whether I knew them personally or not, you know, had this actually a mirror image of my experience, uh, as so many did. They waited tables. They drove limos. They were carpenters. Harrison Ford was a carpenter. Um, you know, uh, David Leisure, my buddy David uh, from Entenest was a carpenter. So, uh, you know, that's the beauty, I think, of our business is that most of us learned our humility and our uh, our ability to stay the course doing the same kinds of work. There, I know very few people who were instant stars, you know, who came to L.A., First job out of the thing, and except Henry Winkler, of course, he came to. We we went to L. A. at the same time with the same agent. Not we didn't, you know, arrive together. Same time, same agent, and I think he was there six months, and then auditioned for Happy Days. And of course, Henry Winkler history is known by everybody. Um, but the rest of us, you know, there was there was a bit of slogging about for a couple of years. And it was character building. It was nice. I was never depressed. I was never wondering, you know, why not me? I, I had a happy marriage, a beautiful child, and enough to eat. And I just figured, you know, I went to school for four years. I think I learned how to act. So I'm just going to wait until somebody hopefully recognizes it. And then uh, you just not.
1: You had a lot to be grateful for.
0: Oh, my God. Absolutely. Whatever
1: it takes to get to get to where you would like to be, you were willing to do.
0: Well, my theory has always been, you know, that if somebody can talk you out of doing something, then you probably really weren't determined to do it in the first place. But actors generally have that stay the course mentality, and and they hang in there. And but if if somebody could convince them that there's another option, then probably they should take it. You know, because it's not for the faint of heart.
1: Wonderful perspective. And Patrick, before we discuss the ad- many adventures of Bobby Ewing on Dallas, I did want to ask you, mm-hmm. when you reflect back on the man from Atlantis, is there anything that mm-hmm. comes to your mind now? Was, was there anything that you learned as an actor that maybe you found beneficial before your Dallas days?
0: Well, I would again. I, and your introduction covered one part of it very well. Is that the other thing I'm grateful for are the people that I worked with at each important juncture in my career. And the very first thing I did on film, other than a you know a bit part where I was Detective Number Six or something, um, was a, a a play written by James Purdell called The Last of Mrs. Lincoln. And I got to work for about two and a half weeks with Julie Harris. Um, amazing introduction to the craft of working on film. Then I got the man from Atlantis and Belinda Montgomery was an established television actress at that time. And quickly she became a mentor of sorts. Um, I'd never done series television of that magnitude of that amount of financing they had and all of that. And, you know, a prime time, you know, 8 a.m., 8 p.m. Superhero. Uh, You know, I was in deep water, pun intended, and she was always there and she would give me a nod, you know, when I'd done right. Or I would look at her like, what am I doing? She was very encouraging and I appreciated her so much. I went right from that show to Dallas. And Larry Hagman became my guy. The day that we first met for the reading of the pilot of Dallas, I knew that I had met my best friend. And he was my best friend to the day he died. Um, And I went right from Dallas to step-by-step, and Suzanne Somers became that person for me. So I've always had this guiding angel for my introduction to the three most significant parts of of my career and very quickly it was no longer a mentorship it was just a friendship but at that crucial moment into a new environment to have someone that you absolutely trust to be able to look to in those formative first couple of weeks is really beneficial and to this day belinda is a dear sweet friend of mine as is suzanne
1: That is so nice to hear. Thanks so much for sharing that. And kind of a two-part question here, Patrick, so I'll just give it to you at once. First of all, that is so nice to hear that you clicked with Larry instantly. I'm actually not surprised to hear that. But I'm wondering if there is any other story to the actual audition for Bobby, anything that maybe stands out in your mind. And I thought of an interesting question for you, Patrick. Were you familiar okay. with Larry's performance on I Dream of Genie?"
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, I can go backwards because sure. I think everybody on in the, in the planet <laughs> was aware of *I Dream of Jeannie*. It took many episodes before I realized there was anybody besides Barbara Eden on *I Dream of Jeannie* because she was so beautiful and she walked around in a on. Yes, um, that was that was the big calling card. So I knew of uh, of the show. Uh, I didn't have any particular. Knowledge or uh, you know um, awareness of, of Larry as an actor, I just thought he was funny. He and, and the guy and his buddy on the show, I thought they were pretty funny, you know, characters to to watch along with Barbara. Um, but then uh, uh, the first part of the question was about auditioning for Dallas, and quite into I never auditioned for Dallas. I was offered the part of Bobby Ewing. Based on the fact that the executive producer of Dallas, a man named Leonard Katzman, when I was doing The Man from Atlantis, Leonard Katzman was producing literally next door on the next stage over a show with Gregory Harrison and Heather Menzies called Logan's Run. And Logan's Run was canceled. We at um, Atlantis, we pretty much figured we were going to be canceled, but we hadn't been yet and Logan's run was canceled, and uh, Lorimar had contracted Leonard Katzman to produce uh, Dallas. So he was still on the lot at MGM when I was doing Atlantis, and he was doing preparatory work on Dallas. And he just thought, oh, the character of Bobby, I wonder what that Patrick Duffy is like. Because I think he just felt that physically I look like I fit the bill. So he he's an old school producer director. God, I loved him so much. Um, he literally went to my soundstage when I wasn't there, and sat around and talked to my crew. You know, just finding out what type of guy is Patrick Duffy. Is he a team player? Is he a you know a prima donna? Does he does he show up on time? Uh, is he problems for production or anything like that? And apparently, obviously, I got a clean bill of health from my crew. And then the offer just came in through the agency. Would Patrick Duffy be interested in this show? Uh, And I took the job without ever having an audition.
1: That is so nice to hear. And isn't it wonderful, Patrick, that on the very first scene of Dallas the very beginning, you are you are in that scene with, along with Victoria yep. and driving yep. back to Dallas. And what a way to, to start the show and your adventures as Bobby. And you know, something that doesn't get mentioned too much, Patrick, it, those early days were very interesting to me because JR, at least from my estimation, was still rising in power. And I say that because... Even though he was doing a lot of things to strengthen that power, isn't it interesting that so many characters were shocked in the early days that he would actually do something so devious or he backstabbed somebody? I mean, as time went on, Bobby, you know, halfway expected it and then eventually almost always expected it. But I remember those early scenes, Patrick, where your character Mm -hmm. was actually surprised.
0: Oh, stunned. Well, a part of it, you know, a lot of it was the writing. David Jacobs wrote brilliant uh, introduction to that show, that five part. Um, now, I, I'm not sure David wrote all five episodes. You know, and I know you spoke to Steve and He is actually an encyclopedia of knowledge of Dallas. So anything that I say, if Steve contradicts it in any way, go with Steve's okay. explanation because I know he knows. Okay. <laughs> But I, I'm not sure David Jacobs wrote all five episodes of the miniseries, but the establishment of that first episode, which I think is really one of the best episodes of television period. It was a different look. It was uh, gritty. He did it in the winter in Texas. It had a grayness and a difference. It looked different than anything that had been on television at the time. Um, And it was a a brilliant introduction to all the characters um you know and and here's a little side thing a little you can win a trivia contest with this maybe is that uh, because leonard katzman was lenny we all called him uncle lenny uh, when we did the final episode of dallas in 1991 he came to me and said i want to bookend the entire dallas show with uh, you know, you having been in the first scene driving the red Mercedes with Victoria, I want you in the final shot of the final episode of Dallas. And I told him, well, thank you very much. And I actually still have the leather coat. So I went to my closet and to win a trivia contest, Bobby is wearing the same leather jacket in an episode, what, 357 that he wore in episode one.
1: Isn't that something else? Just
0: as a, yeah, just as an homage to everything, we decided to do as much as we could. It didn't fit me the same way. But, uh, <laughs> maybe
1: it felt a little but bit different. But... Was, yeah, <laughs> but
0: the first episode was, was one, and I looked at that you know, maybe a year ago, and I, 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 the first 10 minutes of Dallas establishes everything you need to know about what's going to happen for 13 years. Uh, Bobby and Pam in love, driving back. Oh, what are they going to say? And that first person we see is Mama. She comes out of the kitchen. It was a different South Fork, of course. She comes out of the kitchen and I say, Mama, I want you to meet my wife. And she, of course, knew who the, the Pamela Barnes character was. And I think her first line, again, Steve would tell me if I'm right. I think she just looked and said, oh, Bobby, because she knew yes. what was going to happen now. She knew, oh God, that the floodgates are open now. And then, in short order, we get introduced to Hagman, we get introduced to uh, Linda Gray, you know, Charlene's in the loft with Steve. Um, and bang, you know this entire family and the dynamics. And the beauty was that, after the first five episodes, they started writing to what they saw in Hag- Hagman. They started writing to this sort of twinkle, devilish thing. And the J.R. character was engendered really by Hagman. Um, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't as central in the first couple of episodes. And then when they saw the strength of what he brought, uh, they just kept aiming towards it. And they did the same with Linda. You know, she would, I don't think she even, she didn't have a credit at the front of the show in the miniseries. And, um, She literally just had things like more coffee, Jr. and then they started to see the content behind her performance, and they started writing them to that. So those two characters specifically were invented by the actors. The beauty of their performance dictated that they carve out their own space in the show. And thank God they did, because I'm— you know, if, if, if the show were left in the lap of myself or Victoria or any of those other characters, it would not have lasted for 13 years. Hagman and the character of J.R. are the sole reason that the show got traction, because then all the other characters could respond to that character and that dynamic. And the show just, you know, Hagman, you know, was the, was the water and we were all the boats. And the boats just rose with the level. And he carried the show.
1: So well said, Patrick. Thank you for sharing your perspective on those early episodes in particular. And you're completely right. Because as a viewer, and this was a wise decision, you felt like you were actually stepping into the middle of something that was already going on there was already established rivalries and i'll never forget patrick i don't know if you recall this the first few moments of larry on dallas he wasn't saying a word he was watching cliff barnes on television at a committee and of course it involved the the Mm -hmm. ewing oil business and the look on larry's face told you right there (laughs) <laughs> that there is something between these two characters and and boy, yeah, there sure yeah, was yeah. and and another thought, Patrick, before I ask you a question I am so excited about because I've never actually heard you discuss this, although you may have okay but Another moment from the early episodes I wanted to share with you that has always stayed with me, and that is when Jr. tries to to to, to see if Pam will be untrue to Bobby and has Ray take her to that cabin, right. and, and when you show up, right. and of course you're livid, and it looks like it's going to result in a punch. You know, Pam says, "No, right. Bobby, he's your brother," and I don't know. It just always stayed with me uh, through the uh. years of of you know that obviously bobby does care for jr despite what he did and i just wanted to share that with you
0: yeah 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 that's interesting uh, i i don't specifically uh, recall her saying that but it it's perfect writing it's exactly what the show needed and uh it's you know next time i see that episode uh I'm going to look for that. Thanks.
1: Well, you're most welcome. And I think you'll enjoy what he says after your characters leave <laughs> where he tells Ray, well, yeah. I think I misunderestimated underestimated Pamela Barnes, but I'll be sure not to do that again. <laughs> yeah, well,
0: yeah. And then he went ahead and, mis- you know, made that mistake for another three
1: years. <laughs> Well, Patrick, I am excited about this question. And that is this. Okay. You know, I always enjoyed your scenes on the ranch. I I really liked the cowboy side of Bobby, and I I hope that was an accurate description. I mean, I think Bobby is just as much a cowboy as Ray, but I also think he had another side, and that is, you know, the business side, at least for an extended period of time. But I'm wondering, you looked so natural on horses. Did you have to take any special training in advance, or had you already experienced riding on horses?
0: Well, my Montana upbringing made me extremely comfortable on horses. Um, that, I think, was the, the benefit. Um, and the reindeers, the minute they they saw me on a horse, they relaxed. They didn't, you know, because a lot, first of all, every actor should write a biography and it should be entitled, Of course I Can Ride, <laughs> because every actor says that. And then sometimes they look like the, the monkey riding the dog in the circus act. Um, And it just doesn't play well. Uh, My Montana upbringing made me extremely comfortable on horses. Uh, I told you when I would go spend weeks on ranches with friends. You know, we literally take our bridles and walk for an hour into the fields and then in the foothills to find the horses that were, you know, pastured and that wasn't in a pasture. They were just, you know, way out there, and we would finally be able to back them into a place where they couldn't get away, throw a rein around their neck, put the bridle on them, and just swing up. We'd ride bareback the rest of the day. Um, And through the brush and through, you know, just everything. And it made me, A, respect horses immensely uh, and never totally relax around one because they are beasts that are trained to uh, avoid confrontation. So they'll leave you looking at the stars if you're relaxed too much. But also, I just felt like I could be a part of a horse. And so when Bobby got uh, you know, put his cowboy on, um, yeah, I felt comfortable. I think I looked comfortable. And, uh, you know, essentially I am a cowboy at heart. Um, So it all fit. The other side of it is the way the structure of the show was written. which you alluded to because you observed it is that Bobby was always considered mama's boy. JR wanted to be daddy's boy. Bobby loved the ranch. Bobby was, his heart was not in business to begin with at all. Um, he, he loved the ranch. He felt that that was his inheritance, where JR felt business oil was his inheritance. But it was later on in this run of the show that. I think it was at the behest of Victoria's character. I think she's the one who planted the seed that he he could go into the office. He could take take part of the responsibility for the business as well. And I don't think Bobby was quite uh, ready to do that. He he enjoyed what what the pilot said was the three Bs, booze, broads, and booty. Yes, uh, and he, he, his his job was to entertain people, bring them into the company, and then go back and be a cowboy. And it was it was Pamela that encouraged him that he was every bit as good at business as Jr. And he and that's when he decided to have his own office in the Ewing in the Ewing Building, etc. And then he became a businessman as well as a cowboy. But I think his heart was always if he could get on horseback and just take care of the ranch.
1: A cowboy at heart. And
0: pretty much a cowboy at heart, and the ranch uh, would look to him for instruction. I mean, of course, Mama and Jock were the patriarchs and the matriarch of the family. But Bobby was, you know, the the hired help would refer to Bobby, you know, in terms of the final decision. Um, You know, and of course, Ray, because he was the foreman of the ranch during that time. But um, it, I enjoyed also working with Steve when we got to be, you know, quote unquote, cowboys side by side.
1: Those were some fun moments. I enjoyed them when you were both out on the ranch yeah. so much. And, and of course, J.R. could ride a horse, but he just didn't seem as smooth as you two. <laughs> no, but he did pretty good. Be in <laughs> well, Larry can do anything.
0: Larry, is a, Larry was a superb athlete, uh, literally a superb athlete. Um, he would play, you know, racquetball with Steve and I and just embarrass him oh, wow! With his ability. Uh, so getting on a horse <clears throat> felt normal to him, but he did not like He did not like riding horses. Uh, it was not his comfort factor. Oddly enough, he was really nervous every time he had to do a love scene with one of his hundreds of girlfriends. Really? Uh, that wasn't his, oh, that was not his comfort factor at all. No, he, Very interesting. He would always get really nervous, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, that must have been a tough job for him. All those gorgeous ladies uh, oh. being thrown his way. <laughs>
0: he had he had more women. Oh my goodness, it
1: was amazing. I'll tell you, it was hard to keep track after a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. well, and of course, you had your share of wow, absolutely stunning women who were also many were very strong women, which I also admired. And Patrick, a kind of connecting to the cowboy theme. I thought I would ask you about those rodeo episodes. They were just so realistic looking. Uh, was that something you enjoyed filming?
0: Oh, especially Steve and I would enjoy that. It's, gotcha. You know, you know, it was, first of all, the the hard part about any of that stuff that we did in Dallas in the summer was just the heat. The heat was so oppressive. And, and, difficult and you know we most of the time you're trying to look like it's not hot at all the women have to look beautiful the men have to not sweat so when we got to do a rodeo and steve and i then would be on horseback it didn't matter we could sweat and look like we were you know really doing the game um and we loved doing it um I, you would never get me on a real bucking horse or you know you know i can't throw a rope to save my life um I can look like I can, but it's never going to hit its mark. So we had some great stand ins that would you know, do, the, do the riding in the arena on a bucking horse or you know, rope a calf at a full gallop and that kind of stuff. You know, we were covered very well. They protected our cowboy image uh, pretty brilliantly.
1: It was very enjoyable when Jared Martin who portrayed Dusty Farlow, was mm-hmm. often included at times during those rodeo scenes. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I enjoy, enjoyed yeah. his character very much as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Jared was a lovely man to work with. A lovely mm-hmm. man. And passed too soon, in my opinion, Definitely.
1: Yes. And Patrick, hey, how about something where you don't usually have to get as uh, muddy and, or dirty, And that is the Ewing barbecue episodes. I have to tell you, Patrick, I couldn't wait to enjoy the episodes because they were fun and lighthearted. But sometimes very serious, dramatic storylines would, you know, be a part of the, the Ewing barbecue or Cliff would show up when he shouldn't or someone would say something when they mm-hmm. shouldn't. And I just wanted to yep. ask you, um, you know, about Filming those type of episodes.
0: Well, those were great fun. First of all, we had a huge uh, group of uh, supporting actors. You know, some you know uh, returning characters, but we had a lovely group of extras and the hardest working people on the are the extras and the, the atmosphere people. Um, but we got to know them all over the years in Dallas, so it was sort of a party for us. But whenever we would read, oh, they're going to do the Ewing barbecue, or which I'm sure you'll bring up If now that I've spoiled it. That, <laughs> c- cattle Barons Ball. Yes. The one that was called the Oil Barons Ball. But it, it was uh, patterned after a real ball that happens every year in Dallas called the Cattle Barons Ball. So we just named it the Oil Barons Ball. But as soon as we read, oh, there's going to be, so somebody's going to get in a fight. A bunch of people are going to get pushed in the pool. Somebody's going to get a pie in the face. I mean, we knew hell was going to break out at some moment when we would read that there's going to be a U.N. barbecue. So it was great fun. We always enjoyed them. Uh, it was you a know, difficult couple of days of filming just because of the heat, but, but it served its purpose. And the first one was in the miniseries. The barbecue in the miniseries really established. That's yes. when I think Cliff Barnes showed up. Yes. You know, unannounced.
1: Unannounced.
0: And ruined the, ruined the afternoon. But uh, once they saw how well that worked, there was usually one or the other of the barbecue or the ball.
1: Every Patrick, I would love to ask you about Bobby's mama and daddy, Barbara Bel Geddes and, okay. and Jim Davis. I would just like to say to you that in regards to Jim Davis, first of all, I'm so glad that he got to experience success like this at that time in his career after having worked so hard for decades beforehand. But isn't it something, Patrick, this thought just occurred to me this morning, that Although Jim would be gone, unfortunately way too soon, but he would be gone, his legacy and impact, his shadow, so to speak, it really stayed with the show. Uh, Jock Ewing's you know, company and Jock Ewing's family. I mean, these were driving forces with your character, and of course, Larry's in particular. Isn't that something to think that yeah. in a way, he never really did leave?
0: Oh no, he was he was omnipresent, and they helped that with the fact that the season after Jim passed, they commissioned that portrait of him, uh, which was so Jim Davis, which was so yes. jockeying and Cowboy in that big white hat of his, and the uh, I think it was a lion medallion necklace thing that he, that he wore, and they replaced the picture. Over the bar in the Ewing living room, which for the first three seasons was uh, Grandpa Southworth, Miss Ellie's father, and, and he looked a bit like um, Ulysses S. Grant, and I actually have that painting. Do you in my
1: home? Oh right wow! Right now. Yeah, that's very nice. It's just in the
0: next room. Uh, but they they replaced that. The year after Jim died, with a portrait of Jim. So, not only was especially Hagman's character never felt fulfilled in Daddy's eyes. He always he always wanted to measure up and be dad Daddy's right hand man. Uh, and then when Daddy died, I think it was a, a job left undone, which really motivated that for the character of J.R. the Jock Ewing. Hovered above every decision that was made on that show. Um, You know, Barbara's decision, uh, you know, when she finally married Clayton Farlow, you know, it was a a slander of daddy's memory in terms of J.R.'s character. And he couldn't, that's why he hated Clayton Farlow. He just, you know, he wasn't Jock Ewing. And he was in Jock Ewing's house with Jock Ewing's wife and eating at Jock Ewing's table. And and J.R. could not stand that. So, you know, Jim was always with us. Daddy was always there. And we always felt that, too. Um, we would always refer to Jim as Daddy. Almost nobody called him Jim. You know, it was always Daddy this and Mama that. Um, and, you know, his his legacy is, um, you know, that he was a journeyman actor in all those movies that he did, et cetera, et cetera. But everybody in the world knows him as jockey. And that's after only, you know, two and a half years on a, yes. on a television show. And then, of course, 11 and a half years hovering above as an absolutely iconic image, the driving the, the subject matter of the show.
1: And I have heard, Patrick... I mean, I have to tell you, several cast members have shared uh, how much fun you and Larry like to have behind the scenes, which is always <laughs> a good thing. But I was wondering um, about how that would uh, play into with Barbara Bel Geddes. Um, I, I believe I, I I read a story that one time you and Larry put ink in your coffee or, or something to stain your teeth, and then when you were talking to her, she got really frustrated and said, "Oh, you boys."
0: Well, it, we didn't put in, Larry, Larry and I, first of all, we wouldn't do that because uh, we would never, how do I say that, Larry and I were given pretty much free reign to do whatever we wanted <laughs> to do um, for a couple of reasons. One is uh, production knew that we could have film on the set and then the blink of an eye we revert instantly back to Jr. and Bobby and do the most intense scene in the in the episode. So there was never a moment of oh God, we've lost the moment and now we'll never get it back. Or it's gonna take another 15 minutes before, you know, they can settle down. We would literally break each other up and put pranks on whatever we would do. And then they would say, okay, ready. Um, the throw camera and we would just click back in and be uh, Bobby and Jr. So that was, you know, and, and we were pretty much the only two characters that could do that consistently. Um, there is outtakes where everybody, you know, A, either goofs up or B, <laughs> plays a joke or, you know, does a thing. It was our, pretty much, uh, you know, our modus operandi uh, for Hagi and I to do that. And generally only to each other. Very few times see. We do anything to another character or another actor, because it's asking an awful lot of you yes. know, them. And it's also presupposing that, you know, oh, they don't need to get into character. They don't need to prepare for that scene. So let's just have fun. And Larry and I would never do that. If anybody had an important scene, we were on our best behavior always because we all respected each other so much. Um, But if it was just Haggy and I in the scene, Katie barred the door, you know, all the gloves were off. We would just do anything to each other. And it was great
1: fun. Well, I'll tell you what, before I bring up a a topic that's also fun, and that has to do with the uh, Ewing swimming pool, (laughs) where a lot of people were either pushed or dragged in or fell in, and maybe occasional days of calm swimming thrown in for good measure. Um, I did want to share with you that Deborah Trinelli shared a story. uh, I I believe it was at the Ewing offices, and you and Larry were supposed to come up the elevator. And she said when the door opened, you both were on your knees to where it looked like, you know, the elevator was (laughs) stuck. And she just says that that memory is just something that just puts a smile on her face to this day.
0: Oh. (laughs) <laughs> no, that, that sounds very typical. It's a wonder we didn't have our pants down. Around our ankles. Like, was, like the elevator was so fast, we couldn't keep our belts on or something. But uh, yeah, that is so typical of, of just the, the sort of brotherly love that had and I had for each other. To be able to just do those things it was it was wonderful. So I'm glad they put a smile on Devil's face.
1: Well you know, Patrick, oh boy, there were some dramatic scenes where you actually you know, took Jr. and pushed him in the pool and after probably finding out some upsetting news of something that he had done behind your back. Oh, yeah. But I thought I would bring up uh, the wedding episode between Jr. and Sue Ellen the, 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 uh, when they get back together. And as you know, a big right. confrontation with Cliff Barnes. Everybody's in the pool. Uh, that just looked like so right. much fun to film. Oh, it's,
0: you know, the the have was what we looked forward to. Um, First of all, falling in a pool with your clothes on next to playing a cowboy. It's pretty much every actor's dream. (laughs) You just want to, you know, first of all, it's wardrobe. So you're not worried about it. It's not your watch. You're not worried about that. Uh, You don't have your cell phone in your pocket. So literally when they would write a thing where everybody gets punched in, in your tuxedos, you're in the pool. Um, we would love it. And uh, the only thing is, they would the, the production, of course, would be really nervous that we'd get carried away and somebody would go in and rehearsal, as opposed to when the camera was rolling. So, um, it, But getting wet, and, and in the South Fork Pool in Dallas, at least it was a real swimming pool. Well, and the one that they built on the soundstage in Los Angeles, the depth of the water, I think, at most was four feet. So you you couldn't dive unless you knew how to dive real shallow. The pool was shorter, so a, a lap was literally pushing off and then touching the other side. So it, it was a different situation that we always had to uh, accommodate, whether we were in Dallas or whether we were in MGM Studios in L.A. But um, again, the the pool situation was much like the barbecues in the...
1: A lot of fun.
0: Ball. We just... You, it was a lot of fun, and you knew that at some moment, all hell would break loose. And I think we have some still photos somewhere. I've seen them of, uh, you know, because then, of course, the entire crew gets pushed in at the end of the day. <laughs> That's you know, great. The
1: director is in the pool. i would never heard that before. That's great.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. It's pictures of, of all of us in our tuxedos, and I think it was Michael Priest in his street clothes. He was directing that
1: episode. <laughs> He's in there.
0: And a couple of the women. You know, just, you know, the work's over, that's that's a wrap, just get pushed in the pool. Yeah.
1: Well, Patrick, I have to bring this up to you, since we're kind of on this topic, and that is this. Oh, wow. I'm very excited to bring this up. I, I really, really enjoyed those bar brawls that Bobby used to be involved with. And let me just remind folks, some of these were very extended scenes. They weren't just a few, yep. you know, smacks here and there. So I wanted to ask you, I, I assume you probably enjoyed doing those scenes, but uh, when you think mm-hmm. back, what is challenging about doing a big, you know, action scene like that, or any action scene that you encountered on Dallas, for that matter?
0: Well, for me, the important part, I've always had this sort of thing that my head does which is uh, which is why I ended up directing so much is I never get fully taken away with th- the exuberance let's say of the moment it's all very technical to me it's and maybe it came from you know being married to a ballerina and choreography is it was absolutely vitally important for me to know exactly you know every punch that was going to be thrown. You know every stuntman that we were using, and and it, that nobody ever would get hurt. And so that was always occupying a certain part of my mind. And then the second part of it was the fact that pretty much the script always says Bobby wins, so you know look <laughs> <so it's laughs> like a hero. They're going to make you look like you can, you know, clean the bar. And there, I think there was only one time that I lost a, a fight because Bobby was drunk for getting some you know, Pam left him or whatever it is, and he gets a fight in the bar and he's he's really winning until Steve comes in and spins him around and in one punch knock and cold. I
1: remember him. that scene, yes yeah yeah so
0: i I thought it's interesting Bobby could get punched by all these other guys and then come up sign in and start winning. And one punch by Ray Krebs.
1: <laughs> Got the job <laughs> so done. <not> <laughs> Got
0: the job done. Steve throws a mean punch. But they were great fun things to do because they were so well orchestrated. We had great stunt coordinators. And they were, as you said, they were long fight scenes, like old Western barroom fight scenes. Yes. And uh, and you do feel like a hero, you, you, you know. And, and I was in good shape then. You know, I was, you know, I was, I worked out all the time. So I, I, I physically could do whatever the stunt man asked me to do, which was always great fun, but you know, no, no mistake. <clears throat> you know, it was all choreographed yes. on you know, our best behavior. There's no goofing around on a, on a soundstage when there's a fight or a gun, you know, you're on your best behavior. You follow orders. Um, you do what the stunt coordinator says. And everybody comes
1: home. And Jim had his moments too. Remember the camping episodes, Patrick, where yep. you all went out and and we and uh, yep. Jr. actually gets shot for the first time. I mean, obviously not, you know, to the extent of who shot Jr., but some folks have yep. uh, forgotten that he actually had been shot during that episode. And I recall Jim Davis taking care of a few guys in that uh, bar. <laughs> yeah, well,
0: and, and we actually watched. You know, I can remember watching Jim. In that, because he he just immediately reverted back to old cowboy Jim Davis in those old films yes. that he was doing, it was great fun to watch him take a couple of just haymaker kind of things yes but, you know, <laughs> it was it was great and and I think I don't think Larry punched anybody but he. He was sitting at a table and I think he broke a beer bottle his head or something, you know? but he stayed out of the fray as much as possible.
1: It kind of sounds like that scene in uh, War of the Ewings where he uh, had the suitcase and he kind of just uh, stayed to the side a little bit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to yeah. um, uh, ask you, Patrick, before I ask you about Bobby being shot. Which was a shocking uh, cliffhanger. Really, one ranks up there with one of my favorites because I couldn't believe it was your character that fell out of that chair. It was like déjà vu all over again. Even walking into the Ewing offices, I I loved it. But I wanted to ask you: Who shot J.R.? uh, You know, episode that became, of course, famous in, in television history and helped propel the show. Were you right. surprised by how that surged the show the to the lengths that it did? I mean, from your viewpoint, were you like, wow, this is really something special here?
0: Well, I was because I, uh, you know, at that point, I think that was 82, I think, 1982. Um, you know, I wasn't that long in the business. I didn't, you know, Man from Atlantis survived two years. And there was a lot of press around it because of the subject matter. So I I understood that. Um, But the phenomenon that the Who Shot JR became quite literally surprised all of us. Uh, It surprised production. It surprised the networks. It obviously surprised and overjoyed the actors uh, because of just the light year leap that we went from Oh, this is a a good group of actors on a fun show. To oh my God, this is a worldwide phenomenon.
1: Uh, Everybody was talking about it, and and the press too.
0: Everybody around the world was talking about you know the final uh, resolution of the question as to who shot Jr. Um, And I think you know I know you've talked to Steve, and and he can he can nail down the actual time frames. But two things happened: is one when they. When they shot Jr., it was uh, an addendum to the season. Dallas was doing so well. I I think we were doing 23, 24 episodes a season, and the numbers were getting so wonderful that they already had a cliffhanger in in the books, in scripted as to episode 24, what the cliffhanger will be, and I can't remember what it was going to be. And then the network, literally at the last minute, contacted production and said we would like to have I I think it was three more episodes Uh, we want to extend the season because they were making so much money and they you know they didn't ask pretty much they said give us three more episodes so production and the writing staff and Leonard Katzman were scrambling they had they already had the end of the season and they had to figure out how do we extend three episodes and then what do we do for a new cliffhanger and Lenny said that literally at 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 one of the script meetings, somebody said, "Well, let's just shoot somebody." And then the question was, "Who should we (laughs) shoot?" And there was no mistake who they wanted to shoot. And so they shot Jr. And they didn't know who shot him when they wrote it. They didn't. They figured we'll figure it out over the summer. And so the summer happened, and then everybody started talking about who shot Jr. Who shot Jr. And everybody was looking at September. I think is when the new season would start, and everybody will get the answer. Well, the actors went on strike, and the strike lasted almost three months. So the who shot JR question was not only gonna not be answered in September, it was gonna take almost another summer vacation before they would find out. And it just blossomed into the most talked about question in television history up till that point, literally. And it was internationally asked uh, around the world, um, you know, because the actors had extra time off. Uh, I know Jim Davis went to New uh, to London. Larry was actually approached by the Queen Mum, not Elizabeth, the uh, Queen Mum, and she asked if if he would tell her, please, would you let me know who shot you? And he said, I'm sorry, Mum, I can't do that, and, and because at that moment he didn't know either who shot him. Um, <laughs> So it was, it was crazy for me to, to see, you know, I was used to, oh, I'm, I'm a known TV personality and that's wonderful. And isn't it great that we have this successful show to, oh my God, you can't walk down the street and, oh my goodness, you, you go to Europe and you are mobbed and, you know, oh, I with my wife and my children and I, and I have to protect them now because the crowd's getting crazy. So that was what was stunning for me to see the, the extent to which PR and public exuberance can promote a, a, a show and careers and life, life careers. Uh, literally the Husha JR established all of our careers for the rest of our lives. Uh, Victoria, Jim Davis, uh, Barbara, Steve Canale, uh, Charlene Tilton, Linda Gray, myself, we are who we are today because of that juncture of time, instances that happened, the strike, the, the, the popularity of the show, the international popularity, um, all of those things uh, are the reason we're here.
1: Thank you for sharing that, Patrick. And if we fast forward to Bobby's dramatic mm-hmm. shooting, again, I mentioned that mm-hmm. it was very shocking. However, they did a nice buildup to the shooting uh, where people were starting to get very angry at Jr. again. I mean, it was really deja vu. There was even some moments of music where someone kind of threatened him, and yet it was your character that, that took the bullets. Uh, how was that experience for yeah. you? And, and did you even know who actually shot Bobby at that time?
0: Trying to think if I knew or not. You're going to have to remind me right now who did shoot me.
1: Well, we could ask Steve, it? but I, I think I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. and, uh, Morgan Brittany, her character.
0: Oh, it was Morgan. That's right, Catherine Wentworth. I was going to guess Morgan because I thought I remembered that. Yeah, um, uh, I don't. I don't think. I don't think I knew. Yeah, I don't think I knew that it was her. Uh, until later, it wasn't a, uh, as well kept secret as the Who Shot Jr. Um, it was more the shock that it was Bobby is the question yes. that everybody got, um, and it was fun to do. You know, it, it was uh, another treat, uh, another moment to shine, another moment of attention, which all of us actors love when our character is the focal point in a storyline. Yes, um, it makes you feel good. It makes you work maybe a little harder on things. Um, uh, but when I spun out of that chair and, you know, that was choreographed, you know, we have to show the blood, we have to, you know, is he alive, is he dead, that kind of thing. And then I think I was blind for a
1: while. Yes, the uh, following season.
0: So that, was, so that was fun to do. And you
1: um, did a great job during yeah, those episodes, too.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, but all of the, I mean, my goodness, as as actors, you couldn't ask for a better show to have a variety of things the you know, the fact that it was a soap opera and it was that family drama and we sort of changed the format of television for a while, you know, you not only play a hero you know, over and over and over again, or a bad guy over and over and over again, but you get to run the gamut of stuff. You're, you're sometimes bad. You're sometimes good. You're sometimes shot. You're something, you know, in 13 years, every every actor on that show covered a lot
1: of territory. Yes. That's wonderful perspective. It really is. Now, Patrick, I wanted to ask you about a certain cartel member. Obviously, there was a lot of interesting okay. folks portraying those characters. But I have to ask you about one. I'm probably going to tip my hat who it is. He loved you when things were going his way and you were doing what he wanted. And he had a scowl on his face and was very unhappy when they were going the opposite direction. And that would be the character mm-hmm. of uh, uh, Jordan Lee portrayed by Don Starr. And I, I always enjoyed oh, your right. scenes with Jordan so much. And and uh, I just wanted to ask you about your memories working with him.
0: Well, it- We had such a depth of talent in those second-tier actors that were were regulars on the show. Um, Every one of them, and and Don was definitely one of them, Tom Anderson played by um, Morgan Woodard, Um, all of those actors brought an amazing um, catalog history of the business with them. And although they didn't talk about it and they all remember me, you know, when I was on Widerup and, you uh, they didn't bring it with them in terms of their professional uh, abilities, their professional courtesy, their, their deportment on set. Um, everything about them was this dignified respect for the craft of acting. And Don Starr was that kind of actor. Um, he, he was always underplayed, um, he mastered he that, he, he had that kind of, oh shucks, uh, not, not hillbilly kind of thing, but just quiet uh, respect uh, of a character. Um, and I remember there, you know, he was the one that broke the, the, the news that, you know, Cameron might still be alive uh, when he saw yes. her in Europe. Uh, something and uh, I, I remember those types of scenes all the time that it, you know you just felt like you were in the hands of a really comfortable professional person uh, when you would do a scene with those actors
1: and we have a lot of
0: them over the years and, and I think that came from Leonard Katzman having been in the business especially the television business uh, in the 40s and 50s and 60s um, that, well, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, but uh, he just had a, a mental catalog of who are these great guys that you can count on. You, you hire them, they show up. They've got, they're have got off book when they step on the set. Um, they got their character down 100%. You can do two takes and, and rap, and that's done. And again, Don exemplified that kind of professionalism. I, I enjoyed doing the scenes with him a
1: lot. Thank you for sharing that, Patrick. I enjoyed that answer very, very much. Well, if we go to the emotional episode, Swan Song, after you made the decision to leave Dallas, I have to tell you that I felt numb at the conclusion of the episode because as a viewer, as a young guy in the 80s, I I couldn't imagine a world where Bobby Ewing wasn't a part of, you know, I, I, Mm. I couldn't believe that. Bobby Ewing was dead. And, you know, they definitely made it appear that there was just no chance that Bobby could return. You know, obviously, shows have had people come back, but this felt different. This felt final, if ever anything felt final. I have to tell you, as a viewer, I missed you tremendously during the, the dream season. I was intrigued by Larry's performance, seeing him without Bobby. And it was seemed like you know Jr. just wasn't having quite as much fun, and I'm sure grief was a part of uh, that process as far as the character goes. But I wanted to ask you about your time away from Dallas, and why did you decide to come back?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's a it's a multifaceted little intro to that. Um, let me quickly say that the reason, one of the reasons that it seems so final when Bobby died, is. Um, I had no intention of coming back. Uh, Leonard and I talked at great length about how I would exit the show um, and to make it final because neither one of us wanted to play on the PR emotions of the audience. Uh, you know, a fiery crash. No, that, you know, you can survive a fiery crash. Or, you know, the plane goes down. There some, are some survivors. It wasn't that. So, We decided, and I asked for it, and Leonard agreed, I said, Bobby has to die so that there's no chance he's coming back, that they're not going to hope he comes back. And so that's when Leonard, you know, whoever wrote that script, Leonard always oversaw all the writing. Um, They made sure that Bobby died in that emotional scene in the hospital with the entire family around him. And Bobby, in fact, did die. So the reason that Bobby died is... Uh, seven years, that was the end of the seventh season of Dallas. And uh, you probably know because you're in the business is that most contracts run seven years. Uh, so you sign a seven-year contract on a show like that. And I would never uh, breach uh, a contract ever uh, or cross a picket line or any of that. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I just, that's that's my feeling. That's who I am. So at the end of seven years, though, I was free to renegotiate, uh, you know, or not. And the show was so popular and it was an ensemble show. And, you know, my business mind said if there was ever a time to leave and try and establish a separate career, that would be. Logically, be the time to do it. So that's when I approached the production company, and they did not want me to leave. Larry didn't want me to leave, and quite honestly, it, it wasn't the smartest thing. The show didn't want to uh, unbalance the show. Let's just put it that way. Um, but I was adamant that I wanted to try this, and, and Leonard and and Laura Mar said okay, and and I left with their blessing. It wasn't. I didn't leave in a huff and a puff. Um, they gave me a parting gift. I mean, the whole thing, it was just, it was sweet and it was lovely. And the, 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 you know, the show and the way it was written was the most fitting exit to a character I could ever imagine. Um, and so I left, uh, and I, I did a few things. Uh, it did not in one year manifest itself the way that I had projected it could. Um, I didn't go right from Dallas to another series. Um, did a couple of TV movies in Europe. I did commercials. I did stuff. And two things happened simultaneously. One is I realized I was not having the fun that I had had for the first seven years. And Haggy was not having any fun at all. And he he, he and I would communicate. And and it was at his insistence, basically, that um, they approached me uh, to to come back and so uh, you know and they knew everybody knew that Haggy was the only one, sorry I keep calling him Haggy oh As that's Hage okay was the only one, he was the only one that could approach the subject uh, that I would listen to and literally <laughs> one day we came back and back in the day it shows you how we land the message is blinking on the answer machine and also you rewind the tape and you push play and it was Hagman and it, I said, uh, Patrick, this is Larry. I want you to come out to Malibu. Let's get drunk and take a jacuzzi. And that's all the message was. And I uh, clicked off the machine. I turned to my wife and I said, they're going to ask me back on the show. And her first response was, well, the only way you could go back on the show now is if that whole season was a dream. That was her knee-jerk response. So I went out to Malibu, I did get drunk, we did take a jacuzzi and said, you gotta come back to work I'm not having fun anymore. It was exactly what you said. He, when you saw he wasn't having fun, he was not having fun. Um, we were two playmates that weren't allowed to play together anymore. And he said, you have to come back. Uh, and I literally said, okay, we don't just have to figure out how. And then Larry Katzman, essentially had a meeting with me, and he said, here's my plan. And he outlined uh, the, the dream season. And and the other coincidental thing was uh, Leonard was gone that same year. Leonard had left the show to produce another show. So Dallas, and you're, as an observer, I think you feel this, you at least acknowledge it, that the show changed a bit during that season. And Larry was not pleased with the subject matter of the scripts, uh, it got so international and drugs and all kinds of strange things, and Larry wasn't happy with a the the, the scripts themselves, and b uh, we weren't having fun together. So that's why I came back on the show, quite literally, and you know was happy to do the Dream Year. Um, it upset some of the audience because you know, and I totally understand they were invested in the show as fans and they felt a bit cheated. Um, but they stayed with us, and we got uh, five more years out of the show. And the other thing that happened was, that, you know, ABC had uh, Miami Vice, and you know, I left the show and the numbers dropped. Um, ABC decided to put Miami Vice opposite Dallas, which... Up until that time, it was a death note for any show. If you were opposite Dallas, you just figured you weren't going to work past the nine episodes. Mm-hmm. Right. But they, they scheduled Miami Vice opposite Dallas and announced it. And then they announced, uh, CBS announced that I was coming back <laughs> oh. on the show. Now, well, we killed Miami Vice. Miami Vice was canceled the next season because their members died. Um, wow. So, you know. It, Again, I, I got to play with my best friend for five more years. So it was the best. It was the it was the best decision to leave the show accidentally, and then it was the real best decision to come back to the show on purpose.
1: Well, I'm so glad so, you came back, Patrick. Uh, you were oh, you were I'm so sorry. missed. Me too. <laughs> Me too. And that shower scene where Pam opens it up and and your character says good morning, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. I'll tell you what. Uh, this is a, such a dramatic moment, and after everything that had happened that season, uh, but was that uh, was that true that the idea was to keep it uh, so secretive that it was like you were doing a soap commercial? Is there any yes, truth to that's
0: that? True. No, it's actually, it's one hundred percent true. Um, by that time. Um, there were spies on the set, you know, every, every you know, the Enquirer We had people that, you know, and you can't blame them, you know, if you're working on a, on a set and you're a crew member and somebody offers you a few thousand dollars just to say A, B, or C, you know, I'd be tempted. So, you know, we knew that we had to protect that subject matter. So the whole world knew that Bobby was coming back and nobody knew how. Uh, Leonard Katzman, the only two people from the entire Dallas family that knew what was going on, was Leonard Katzman and the production manager, who, unbeknownst to anybody else, even the writing staff, did not know how it was going to play out. Um, they were at the production house in Los Angeles as if they were making an Irish Spring commercial. They rented the studio. They to a whole production crew that was not a Dallas crew at all. They were only, a crew that only did commercials. Uh, they built a shower. That shower that you saw was was built in the middle of a soundstage. That's all that was on the soundstage with its own hot water tank and everything else. They brought a case of Irish spring soap. And for an entire day, we pretended to make an entire commercial. And the only like. Five seconds that Leonard wanted was the opening of the door, the turn, and good morning. But literally, for the rest of the day, I, the door would open, I would turn to camera, I would say good morning, I would take about a three count because that's my watch time before the free stream, and then I would continue on with, and you could have a good morning too if you wake up like the duck with Irish Springs soap. And I would hold up the soap, and then Leonard would pretend. He would say, "Oh, Patrick, we have to go not on up this commercial," and they would come. So literally for about five or six hours, we, you know, we had the what we wanted the first take. Uh, you know, I am a pretty good first take actor, uh, but literally for five hours we kept filming that over and over and over again, so that nobody would think it was just a fake commercial. Uh, and then they took that, that section. And even Victoria didn't know that scene where she gets up and goes, was actually in the middle of that episode. And she goes into the bathroom. She opens the door and John Beck is in there. And they have a scene, her and John Beck. And, you know, the, the scene is over and the rest of the show goes on. Well, Victoria was watching. and She literally called me about
1: 10 <laughs> seconds after the interview. I bet. But she was watching.
0: She was watching and she thought, Oh, they cut my seat. Oh, it was supposed to be the it, it. And she's watching the rest of the episode and all of a sudden her scene is at the very end. And she gets up and she does the thing. And she opened it was very well acted. She reaches and she opens. as she starts to open the door, they cut to the soap commercial wow. and the door opens, you don't see the hand, and you just see me turn and say good morning and you know, that was five more years of a great job.
1: Well, thanks for sharing that that story and, and the setup. Uh, uh, thank you so much, Patrick. And I tell you what, uh, I thought we would conclude things by me asking you about a, a few of your co-stars just to get your thoughts on them. But I have sure. something I, I cannot wait to share with you because I shared it with Deborah Trinelli and she said it was fascinating to her. So I wanted to share it with you when bobby came back right so let's go to the next season you're back we know he's he's alive okay. for me as a viewer it's very surreal because you realize the season before was a dream and etc cetera, etc cetera. but to me i take away it, uh, from the whole experience this you know many of us wish people in our lives or who are gone could come back and for whatever uh, reason when you when bobby came back felt that way it felt like someone who was truly gone somehow was not Mm -hmm. and I've just never forgot Mm -hmm. that surreal feeling it stayed with me for several episodes Mm -hmm. too like almost in disbelief that Mm -hmm. Bobby Ewing was back right right
0: that's very interesting it's very well I
1: wanted to share that with you
0: thank you thank you yeah I, I appreciate that it's, a, it's an interesting comment, too, in that, you know, if we hold on to those types of feelings, it does assuage the the grief factor of actually losing someone. Because the word losing insinuates that they're gone. And, you know, depending on what your philosophy is, but still, everybody has memories. And if, the, if you can keep the memory alive, then the person's alive. So they don't really lose. So you can... You can not go to the depths of depression at the loss or the the, the exit, let's say, of someone. Um, If you have this sense that, you know, their memories are as real as they were as a person and you don't have to breathe quite so they, deep.
1: They can live on in your heart. That, that was beautiful. Thank you, Patrick. Yep, absolutely. Well, speaking of Deborah Trinelli, I just would love to ask you uh, yep. about your memories of working with her as your faithful secretary. I can tell you that she spoke so highly of you. She said you were so fun to work with, and I wanted to be sure to uh, share that with you. Well,
0: thank you. Yeah, Deborah was wonderful. We. We always felt that, you know, Larry's secretaries were complicit in some of the schemes. Yes. And I, I know that Deborah always felt that she was my protector in the office, that she was there to make sure I was taken care of all the time. So we had, a you know, and the, and the scripts supported that as well, that, you know, that Bobby could trust, uh, what was her name in the show? Um, uh,
1: Phyllis? Yeah, I forgot my uh, secretary. Phyllis, us, yes. Yeah, I think it
0: was Phyllis. I remember Deborah. I just can't remember every character. Like, us, yeah, Phyllis. So Bobby could trust Phyllis. It was always that you know, she, I I felt that Bobby had another set of ears in the office. Yes. To, in his quest to keep up with Jr. with Deborah, and then the other side of it is she was she's absolutely fun to work with. She's as silly as, you know, you you would hope another actor could be. And, and sort of like Larry and myself, where, you know, we would have a wink and a nod a good time, and she could click right back into being famous again. Um, and then I found out later that, you know, she's an accomplished singer. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and and it's wonderful. So I, I love Deborah very much. And um, we've spoken a few times over the years. Uh, but not uh, consistently, but yeah, a good one, um, a yeah. very good actress and uh, a definite asset to the show all the
1: time. Thank you for sharing those memories of, of working with Deborah. I, I know that she will appreciate hearing all of that as well. Well, I would love to ask you about this actor because your character had so much interaction with him on so many levels and degrees. Okay. And that's Ken Kirchival. I would like to say, yeah. Patrick. Um, I always enjoyed the, the later years how Bobby, you know, tried to extend friendship and keep in mind that we're still family in one way or another. And I always enjoyed that aspect mm-hmm. of, of of Bobby with Cliff. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to share with you, yeah. Patrick. Isn't it interesting that when you sum up Dallas on CBS in particular, it is a journey. Characters change. And I've always thought it was interesting mm-hmm. that Cliff, who started out on this quest, you know, with committees, and then he was going to get into politics and then as a lawyer. Isn't it interesting, though, that he changed his standards? And it's kind of like, if you can't beat him, join him. And that's kind of when he became. A different type of version of JR. He started to play dirty himself. I just wanted to share with you that I was always fascinated with that transition and by the end of the series, Cliff was very bitter. In fact, I thought many of his scenes in that last season were fascinating with just how deeply rooted that bitterness was. But I just wanted to ask you, uh, so sad with his passing, but what was it like to work with Ken Mm -hmm. over the years?
0: Well, Ken's a a lovely man, and he was a Renaissance man. Ken was, uh, he could do everything. Oh, wow. He was a professional photographer. He did professional photography for Antique Magazine. Um, He was a brilliant artist. He was a a, a, a Lincolnophile. He had a, a Lincoln collection of memorabilia, Abraham Lincoln. He was an art aficionado. Um, he helped me and my wife start our art collection by virtue of his expertise and his knowledge and the people he knew. Um, he was a Broadway actor of great standing. Um, you know, so he, he, and he was the most fearless actor, I think on the show, he would take chances as a character in, in how he portrayed Cliff Barnes that, uh, you know, as a family and as an individual, I would watch his performance sometimes as it was finalized in the, in the episodes, and marvel at the risks he would take, and every single one of them was correct. None of them felt false. Some of them were quite over the top in terms of the way the other characters were were working and portrayed, but every single time it worked. So he was that kind of person, and he was. A dear friend. He was a, you know, he was a troubled person. He had his demons, um, but uh, his heart was as pure as you can imagine. And um, uh, I talked to him literally, um, I think it was maybe a week before he passed. Um, he had gotten quite sick, then uh, he was determined to learn to walk again. He was had been so sick and laid up. That he had. And, and then shortly after that, he had passed. So um, he's a dear man, uh, and I loved him very much.
1: Thank you, Patrick. That was um, that, that. was very nice to hear all of that. Thank you so much. That really warmed my heart. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Well, before I ask you about the man himself, Larry Hagman, <laughs> I have to ask you about this lady, Victoria Principal. You've discussed her yeah. a lot, but, yep. uh, you know, I'll tell you what talk about having some wonderful screen chemistry it was most definitely there yeah. and she was missed when she left of course but any yeah. just reflection on your time with uh, Victoria
0: well the first thing is uh, I remember her audition because I was already cast they were looking for a Pamela and they had narrowed it down to three actresses and uh, I went into CBS the offices the I forget who was president at CBS at the time and all the casting people. And these three actresses were gonna come in and read with me playing Bobby Ewing. And the first two came in and the description of the characters in the script was she's a, she's a ranch girl. She you know, she she's born and raised on horses, she's a tomboy. She and Bobby, you know, had, had a, a a relationship as high school. Sweethearts and that kind of thing. And, you know, Bobby at that time was obviously a ranch guy. So, you know, that was the description of the character. First two actresses came in, you know, cowboy loose jeans, kind of a, a, a flannel shirt, a real, you know, tomboyish kind of look, right? And good actresses. They narrowed them down to the three contenders. The two were great actresses, came in, had their part down as described. Uh, thank you very much, you know they'd laugh. and then the third time they said, okay, then the next person is Victoria principal. She's done this, that, the other thing. We all said, okay. And, and Victoria walked in. I told her story before. That would be definitely, I told it to her. She walked in, in the plightest pair of jeans that I've ever seen painted <laughs> on a person. She, she had almost a see-through uh, white uh, blouse. Um, sort of Western in style that definitely, you know, haute couture, uh, runaway quality clothing. And her, you know, body beautiful, hair done, sort of pulled back, but really elegant looking. And she walked in the door and I just, in my mind, I'm going, hello, Pamela. I just felt, well, there's no way in hell they're going to decide on anybody else. And in fact, they didn't. She had that before she opened her mouth. And on top of it, she nailed the audition. So um, that first scene you see was so much fun. We were literally having the same amount of fun you saw the two characters having, driving in the open car, stopping at the gas station, you know, chauvinistically now you couldn't maybe get away with it, but me <laughs> swatting her on the butt when she's snooping in my briefcase, and, <laughs> and just that established the the chemistry yes. literally for for the rest of the Bobby Pan years, which is why even when they had trouble they would always get back together. People died for him to solve their problems because you know they, they wanted that love affair to last. They wanted it to be true. And I think all the, through the 13 years, that was what Lottie wanted as well, even though he, he eventually married uh, April. But um, it, it, the panel was always it. So they were the Romeo and Juliet of the show.
1: Thank you for sharing that, Patrick. And now to the man himself, Larry Hagman. One of my favorite yep. aspects of Dallas... What I find so enjoyable and and I looked forward to so much each Friday night, as you know, Patrick, (laughs) was uh, the relationship between Bobby and JR, between your characters. Both of you, just incredible performances over the series. Uh, There's literally, I I sincerely mean this, uh, it seems like an endless supply. Of moments that you both provided viewers mm-hmm. whether you're angry at each other mm-hmm. or more tender moments it, it, it was, um, it, was mm-hmm. it was quite the ride if i can say so myself well i wanted to let Thank you sure. just speak about larry anything you'd like to say but i would like to add quickly that patrick uh, everybody knows about the master schemer but I was always intrigued by the character as far as a dreamer. It seemed like Jr. had this zest for life, and he just thought so big. And you know, I I liked that side of the character. But the favorite part was that emotional side that would come out from time to time when it was clear. That the mm-hmm. character was actually much more deep feeling than one might originally anticipate. And especially with your character, yeah. Patrick, was that at the end of the yeah. day, no matter if you guys were at odds, you were going the characters were going to be there if they ultimately had to and stand side by side as brothers. And before I let you speak, Patrick, a, a little proof from the early days, and this always stayed with me was when two characters went into JR's office and they insulted your character. And J.R. slapped the character. And he said, don't you ever talk about my brother like that ever again. And I've just never forgotten that moment.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I, I think I saw that recently, uh, recently being in the last year. So I saw that that episode or that, that scene. Somebody played it. Yeah. Well, the, the key is, is, you know, and and it was again brilliant staging of the whole concept of the show is that we all lived together in the same house for the entire show. You know, every once in a while somebody would go away for a little bit, but they end up coming back to the house, which meant that we always either had breakfast or dinner together. So you know, no matter what happened in the storyline, we had to come together because Mama and Daddy wanted the family to sit down and you know, that I think just planted that seed in, in all the scripts that ensued is that family was more important even than business that, you know, and there are times when J.R. would say, I'm going to ruin him. He'll never do it, you know, make him sorry. That, But if somebody threatened Bobby's life, you know, you knew that J.R. would have Bobby's back. So it was that, it was always love, but it was love competition. And that's, you know, that takes the hate out of it. You can get angry, you can get really mad, but it never crosses the threshold of hate. Uh, now, hate could be definitely to Cliff Barnes if you're Jr., but not not family. You know, family was sacred uh, to that character. And again, they wrote to it and they mined a deep vein of gold in it that, you know, Larry and I, first of all, we loved each other as people so much. Uh, you know, literally every morning, you know, if we had the same call, which would be 7 a.m. call, we'd meet in his dressing room at 630 and open a bottle of champagne and we'd have a glass of champagne together just to toast the day. Say, here we go. Best job we ever had. And then we'd go to work and then we would go to lunch together. And then, you know, at the end of every day, we'd have a little drink together in the on the soundstage before we'd go home. So that happened for all 13 years of the show. That's just how close we were as, as friends. So, you know, it was easy then to project that into the characters that somehow deep in there, no matter what the storyline was, you got the feeling that half of the anger was the anger that you were disappointed in your brother, you know, as opposed to hating them. And, uh, but, you know, Haggy, literally, I said, when we shook hands at the table reading, I knew he was my best friend. And when I kissed him goodbye on his deathbed, I knew he was still my best friend.
1: All of that really stirred my heart. Thank you, Patrick. And this entire conversation has stirred my heart. You've shared so many memories, and I just want to say huge honor for me, and thank you for so many memories that I will always cherish and, and for visiting me today on the show.
0: Stephen, it's my pleasure. And when, when Steve Keneally told me that he enjoyed the interview, I now understand why and it has a pleasure. Thank you so much. Next on Dallas.
1: You can receive all the latest episodes of Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham, delivered to your favorite listening device by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever happens to be your favorite podcast listening service. Don't miss out. Tune in.
0: Hollywood and Beyond Podcast, created, produced, and hosted by actor and writer Stephen Brittingham. Thank you for listening.